and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I am joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst. I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I feel incredibly lucky this fortnight because we're about to cover one of my all-time favourite films. It's a movie that I requested on a, on a podcast episodes and episodes ago, and Arrow finally listened to me and have picked up true romance and yes i'm sure dan is as effusive about this movie as i am and i just can't wait for a, a total love-in for the next uh, half an hour or so <laughs> dan before we get to your love of this film your shared love of this film uh why don't you regale us with the relatively simple plot of this film yeah i'm trying to work out how uh, snarky to be in my plot <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the it's basically the fantasy of every person who uses prostitutes, isn't it? Dan, we're going to <laughs> uh, we're going to cover all of this uh, for sure. But um, um, the plot, please, so because a lot I, of people listening to this will love this movie. So yes, so, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I and I do like the movie. I do like the movie. It's um a uh, a, a sweethearted nerd is uh, meets a fun sort of proto manic pixie dream girl uh, on his birthday while attending a kung fu cinema mini marathon uh they hook up and she racked with guilt spills the beans that she was a sex worker paid for by his boss um and friend uh he says he doesn't mind he had figured something must be up because there's no way she would have been into him that much under normal circumstances and she reveals that she has fallen for him so between them they decide that they will find a way of her getting out of her contract that's not the right word with her pimp and get married that doesn't go well there are some murders some drugs fall into the mix and we get a sort of micro road movie and the idea that romance conquers all even if that romance is somewhat peculiar there you go. Wow, that that was much more restrained than I was expecting, apart from the bit about it being the fantasy of people who who use prostitutes. Because I a think John, it's a John, it's a John fantasy, like plain and simple. I I would quibble with that quite significantly because um, this is a film that appeals as much to men I know and women I know. This is a oh, film, don't, but Go a on. film can be one thing and it can also be another thing. <laughs> It could be one thing, could be two things. I think it has a lot to to merit it outside of that, but I feel that that is the seed from which it grows. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I haven't met too many people who embark on that kind of thing. I mean, who knows? It's not the sort of thing that people talk about, I guess. But yeah, I was going to um, say, I bet, I bet you've met more than you realise. But I've met uh, a hell of a lot of lonely film geeks, and I think this is more coming from that kind of perspective. Uh, I don't see too many of your traditional personality type who who sort of go and do that I, I don't see them having too many kind of long conversations about the merits of um sonny chiba movies for example um i think this is a film that was written by a kind of super lonely guy who used movies and comic books as escapism and what it is essentially is uh, a comic book kind of romance plot it is a kind of a, a massive kind of fantasy movie but i don't see it as a seedy fantasy which i think is what you're kind well, of alluding well, to but, but i think there's it's a peculiar mix and i think this is actually where some of its success lies is that it's an it's innocently seedy it's it's not especially grubby in the way that it deals with some innately grubby things and not wanting to get ahead of myself and spoil some of my recommendations. If you look at who Tarantino choose to play in the proto, like the sort of near quasi prototype version of this movie, he doesn't play the film geek. I mean, he is a film geek, although he's more of a music geek in that, but he, he plays the guy that buys the sex worker that pays for the sex worker. It's um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It's about, like being true to yourself, like, you know, you're a film geek above above everything else and that's really important to you and how could you possibly, like, you know, he talks to someone who is maybe maybe not a sex worker at the beginning of the film, Christian Slater's character, and she doesn't know who Sonny Chiba is. She's, you know, she basically fails some little tests he's got going, whether they're conscious or not. And that's a, that's, so they don't really, they don't hit it off. But then there's this perfect event where he doesn't have the moral choice of having 
Butch, the sex worker himself. So he's uh, he's absconded, like, absconded. He's exonerated from that moral choice, that moral dilemma. So he gets to gets to sleep with the sex worker without making the decision to book a sex worker. So that's the pure version of that. And then he, uh, and then also she's still pure because she's like, oh, it's only my third day. You know, I'm I'm not an old hand at this. Um, which again was something that played in the in the sort of the short tester version of this. So that was obviously very important. Um, although it was her first night in that. Um, so yeah, like a lot of this is about those decisions being taken away from him, his agency in the involvement with that. And it's it it reads to me at least about oh well you know there are various social barriers to my connectivity with women but actually when all of those are taken away and the decision is made by someone else someone you know i could meet someone and they'd see who i am and they'd share my interests and they'd love all this stuff and actually i've got a lot to give the right woman and that's the fantasy see i i kind of disagree with the kind of angle you're taking with regards to that kind of reveal that she is um a a self-described cool girl uh not a hooker as she says um because and I think that distinction and her kind of distinction of that is very important, but I'll get onto that a little bit later. Um, but I just think that that's in there, not for any kind of, oh, wow, wouldn't it be cool if, um, you know, I could sleep with a prostitute without feeling guilty about it. I'm going to write a script about that. I think it's a narrative device where it's just a fun twist that she's been kind of paid to to be there. And you kind of think, oh, okay, so she's pretending to like this stuff because she's been hired. But it it leads to that kind of wonderful moment where the only thing she was faking was the Partridge family. Um, She's into Kung Fu movies and Star Trek and, and Elvis and all this other stuff. And yes, they've met in a kind of unusual way. But the point isn't that she's a prostitute. Um, I think the point is that she's his soulmate. They've met in this weird way and it just so happens that that's a nice in to um, the next stage of the plot, which is he kind of performs his kind of fantasy, which is uh, this comic book hero or this movie hero, you know, Charlie Bronson going to save the day. And and then that goes into the cocaine stuff. So it's just it's just a plot thing, basically. And yeah, I think it's really kind of nicely handled. I don't ever feel awkward or uncomfortable in fact this is like one of my biggest comfort movies it it literally fills me with joy whenever i watch it i cry pretty much every time i watch it because the music is just so spectacular and the way it's deployed is so spectacular the fact that you know that theme comes in whenever there's a moment of kind of hope or, or or joy or whatever it is um yeah i fucking love this movie and i do not get any kind of seediness from it whatsoever so yeah that's really interesting that that's your issue with it do you have any more issues with it because that can't be the only one no that's pretty much it oh, okay like you know there's some there's some there's some pacing issues but they're pretty minor i think scott does a very good job of directing it i for a long time i felt that actually tarantino this is you know during the early tarantino period i felt that it was probably the like the sort of the the most polished of his movies and i think as he's you know as his career has progressed and his technical uh, adeptitude has increased dramatically it, it no longer carries that title but it's a very you know it's a very well put together film it's got a fucking incredible cast mm. um it's got some great turns from some great actors in it um there's a lot to love i think it's a really it, you know it's a really solid film it was it was merely this re-examination that really made me feel that um and then re-watching the um the sort of the precursor as well um because like you say you know and then he lives out his fantasy but you have to acknowledge that his fantasy is also meeting a woman who he can introduce to all this stuff because that's such a that is such a nerd fantasy like we both love in being able to show someone something like the crux of this podcast is our delight in when we get to tell someone about a movie that they've never heard of and then they love like that's so exciting and here is the the absolute epitome of that in in narrative form yeah well no it's interesting that you say that because yeah i mean there's so much that i kind of want to pick up on there i adore tarantino 
I I just love his movies. I think he's a kind of cult cinema hero and he's provided a gateway into so many incredible exploitation movies and kind of obscure genre trends for people who wouldn't have sought them out kind of without them. Yeah, absolutely. And and even this movie was kind of a gateway into Kung Fu cinema uh, for me. Um, For a lot of people, that would be Kill Bill. But for me, it was that triple bill feature where Clarence and Alabama meet for the first time. And it was also uh, a gateway into Terence Malick for me as well. I watched Badlands because I, I'd read in some review that it had the same music or similar music. So, yeah, I think that obviously movies is, is kind of escapism and inspiration is kind of an extreme motivating force for Tarantino. And even elements of this podcast, like you say, was partly uh, inspired by that idea of trying to provide a gateway to a whole world of rare and obscure movies and in terms of like the 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 kind of fantasy element of of this film and of Clarence I don't know if it's his fantasy to like introduce this stuff to, to people because I don't really get loads of that from this film I always got the impression and correct me if I'm wrong that Alabama was kind of into this stuff already like a lot of the stuff that they talked about off screen on their date night. It, it seems like she, like hence the kind of Partridge family joke, like that's the one thing that she wasn't actually already into and kind of had to pretend to go along with it. So yeah, in terms of the fantasy element, I just think that like so many of Tarantino's movies, this is a film about acting. So everyone is being something they're not whether that's Clarence going into kind of Charlie Bronson mode or Alabama being this kind of fantasy figure who doesn't like to think of herself as a hooker which you kind of alluded to you know Drexel's a white guy who acts like he's black Um, and and Dick Ritchie obviously wants to be uh, an actor so does Elliot and so yeah and obviously Elliot has to really try and put on a, a brilliant performance <laughs> a couple of times in this movie <laughs> so yeah I think it fits very well into kind of Tarantino's oeuvre and I think that what you say about Scott is absolutely true he completely knocked this out of the park like yeah. it is easily one of his best films and he made some incredible films but every decision he made in this improves it whether that's the casting whether that's changing the ending because ultimately you know this is a kind of fairy tale the whole tone of it is this really kind of dark twisted fairy tale and so he he made absolutely the right decision with the ending and tarantino does kind of acknowledge that in the um in the commentary though there's still kind of a maybe a slight hint of bitterness there I, I don't know but i think he still thinks that his ending is better but no this is for me an absolutely perfect movie and i'd say as much as i'm saying how much i adore tarantino and praising him i think scott deserves at least 80% of the credit Though all of these actors were attracted by the script, which has something for everyone, Uh, you know, no matter how small the role, there's something kind of magnificent, which is the mark, obviously, of of, of a great script that's going to attract brilliant actors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is that has always been the the real like ring point for Tarantino is his is his dialogue, his scripts. He's he's obviously very, very good. And they're not just good, they're readable which is yeah. a sort of different quality because I've worked on films that were great. I've watched films that were great where the script was a little less... It was less obvious that they were going to be great at script stage because it, it required that fine touch. It required that directing skill and finesse. Whereas Tarantino's stuff is is so readable. Yeah, I, it's funny actually because whenever I watch this film... It does take me back to my teenage years when I was kind of watching Reservoir Dogs over and over again on VHS when it finally came out on VHS, that is, um, because it was held back for a long time, which seems absolutely bizarre now because it's not that bad. (laughs) But it was treated like a video nasty in the 90s. But anyway, big part of my memory of this movie is actually reading the the Faber and Faber true romance script book that actually had Tarantino on the cover which is slightly insane. Nothing like that's really happened since. And especially with the movie that has Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette and Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken and all the rest of them. The fact that publishers put Tarantino's grinning face on that cover really says a lot about what an astonishing 
kind of impact he had even in the kind of early stages of his career but like i say a great adaptation of a great script i think an underrated element of true romance is that the midpoint happens on a roller coaster that's something (laughs) that really kind of struck me this time Um, like blue jean cop yeah but just the idea that like you've got the rising action and then the descent and they're doing that on a roller coaster and that was Tony Scott's idea in, in the script. They were kind of walking around, uh, I think, LA Zoo. Um, yeah. But but it was going to be in the zoo. But Scott, you know, with his kind of instinct for uh, fast-moving vehicles and you know dynamic action and all the rest of it, I I just think that's so brilliant. It really is. Well, it, they they also they weren't they were they were told that their filming in the zoo was going to be limited. Like they couldn't film in in the way that they had wanted. So it was a sort of uh, like a quick thought from Scott and 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 an absolutely fantastic decision. Yeah, it works. Um, it works perfectly. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I guess I was kind of a, a lonely film geek when this uh came out and this new interpretation that i was dreaming of sleeping with a prostitute guilt-free isn't how i kind of <laughs> interpreted it that's, at the time that's not what i said so. no no i know I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing i'm teasing um i no, i am very much teasing but no i i was kind of quite lonely and into movies in a extreme way and into comics before that was okay i think we've talked about this on the podcast before you know that yeah. era where if you read a comic you got beaten up by the bullies rather than um you know quizzed on your knowledge of the MCU so yeah i you know i i was i was essentially clarence and and i wanted to to meet my alabama um and so yeah watching this now when i'm in kind of i guess that relationship that i wanted when i was that age because um as I've said on the podcast a few times, my partner knows more about movies than I do and certainly more about kind of rare and obscure VHS titles than I do. Like some of the recommendations she's made to me have been absolutely kind of mind-blowing. And so, yeah, watching it with that in mind, now I'm an adult and I've met my partner, I found it a really emotional and quite moving experience because I think it really gets to the heart of loneliness it is very male pov to a certain extent and it was written by a a lonely kind of isolated guy but it comes from that personal place and you can kind of feel it in in every frame like the fact that he's got elvis as his imaginary friend and alabama almost feels like an imaginary friend to a certain extent it's not like a normal relationship where he's recommending stuff to her it's like she's been carved out of clay to be his perfect partner and so there's kind of an imaginary element to it there i can see why tarantino wanted to end it in kind of a tragic way and i think i think there's a lot of sadness in true romance i really do but there's a lot of sadness in in fairy tales and this is a working class fairy tale so like i said before i do think it has the right ending Uh, i just think it's got such a unique tone and atmosphere that i find very emotional and for example dennis hopper let's talk about dennis hopper in this movie yeah so because holy shit like the vulnerability he puts across in such a short amount of screen time you know and and potentially playing a very unpleasant character depending on your reading of uh you know of the famous speech yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it, it for me it might be his best performance. Weirdly, how do you feel about Dennis Hopper in this film, Dan? I mean, I love Dennis Hopper pretty much in general. Me too. I love mad coked up yeah. Dennis Hopper. Yeah. I love serious drama Dennis Hopper, and I love in it for a moment steals the show, possibly even from Christopher Walken Dennis Hopper. Oh Jesus Christ! Yeah, I mean like, they're both what, what perfect. A, like a smouldering powerhouse yeah that scene is it is and again last minute decisions you know a lot of that came out of rehearsal and possibly like the most famous element of it you know the punchline of the scene where they're laughing together and kind of bantering before you know obviously he gets killed that was improv from the rehearsal even the decision to laugh in the original script Hopper got to the end of his speech and Walken's character, he gets up and just immediately pumps three bullets into Hopper's head. So there's none of that kind of 
um you know you're an eggplant you're a cantaloupe this guy you know um and and the the, the kiss and all the rest of it none of that was in there and it's that punchline that really gives it that energy that special energy i feel i would say the for me the best m- bit of performance in that whole scene is Walken's laugh which is such a perfectly observed person who's not used to not being in control of yeah. a situation oh, laughing good. to cover the discomfort they feel at losing control of a situation yes Dan. he's it's so well observed you're so right and it's all in the eyes as well because the eyes are cold um yeah yeah oh fantastic he's he's it's it's that it, he he's he's laughing he's gesticulating in a way he hasn't up until that moment in the scene he's looking back at his guys to see how they're responding to this because now he feels like he is you know to be judged which is not something he's used to like he's checking how this is affecting his role in the room it's a it's such a perfect microcosm that performance yeah and that's it i mean every kind of performance in this movie is special and and we should talk a bit about patricia arquette because i can't imagine anyone else playing this role and it's a tough role obviously you have to balance quite a lot of difficult stuff um certainly in the second half of the film but she is just so insanely charismatic and she just feels completely real it doesn't feel like a performance it feels like she is that human being. Yeah, I don't think she gets talked about enough in a weird kind of way because, like, in a way, both leads were kind of usurped by the the people supporting them. Almost everyone went on to kind of bigger things, though Arquette obviously has had an admirable career, but I guess I'm thinking more of Slater because this is really... His, this and Heather's are his kind of defining roles, really. How did you feel about Patricia Arquette's performance and, and the performances in general? Um, I thought she was absolutely fantastic. I, I To be completely honest, I feel that Alabama as a character is a little bit of a weak point. I think she, like her experiences by and large serve to motivate Slater's character she doesn't have a huge amount of development in and of herself as a character um I think she as an actress she brings a lot of emotion to it and a lot of depth that maybe isn't there in the dialogue but is very much there in the performance yeah um yeah I I think she absolutely smashes it I'd agree with that though uh, for her character she's kind of like the storyteller so whenever there's a storyteller character in these kinds of things, um, in terms of like the development, that's not as important to me for some reason. Um, if you look at something like Goodfellas, yes, Henry Hill goes through lots of changes to a certain extent, but it's all kind of circumstantial, and he's all kind of, he's, he's led by what happens to him as opposed to him ever kind of taking the lead even when well, like he rebels against um I, I i don't know why i'm suddenly doing goodfellas by the way but we're going to um, talk about goodfellas but, for a bit now but bear with me <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it, it's it's only when he kind of becomes addicted to drugs when he really kind of becomes more of a dynamic character but even then he's being led by his addiction and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that it's all part of the kind of fairy tale quality but his, of it but for his, me. But he does have depth, and his his movement as a character is about his resistance to development. He is given right. so many opportunities to evolve, and he always refuses to because he's so set in his ways. And ultimately, that comes to a head where he hands over his agency to drugs, and and therefore he doesn't have to make the decisions about development and evolution as a human because it's all taken away from him. Um, and I actually think that makes him like very different to Alabama in that he he has a huge amount of squandered opportunity um it, it, yeah it makes him a, an amazing character because like you know we're told from a script writing perspective that a character has to change you know you've got to have psychological flaws within a character or, or personal flaws within a character that can be addressed through their choices they need to give up on things they love in order to change things they need to change about themselves blah 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 um, and I think that w- one of the things that makes him so exciting as a character yeah. is that he's just constantly fucking that off he, out the window. He doesn't he's going, no, change. I'm not he's super change. resistant. I have absolutely. To it, yeah. But he's. But it's not that he's not given the opportunity to, and it's not that he changes. Oh no. no! Agency no. other than his own. Yeah, yeah. Other than his own, it's that he has that agency, and he chooses to just fucking dig his heels in and refuses to change at every given moment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm certainly not saying that. Um, 
yeah, I'm I'm not saying that basically. I'm just making the comparison because of the voiceover basically. In in both instances, uh, it's yeah. the character kind of telling their story, right? And in both instances, they don't really change. And I get that um Alabama doesn't necessarily have the same kind of opportunities, but I think we're kind of told I mean, we are told right at the start that this is it's the end of the story. She's telling the story and what she wanted was love. This is a love story. Right. And so she does everything she can to hold on to that love and to protect that love over the course of the movie. Right. And I think she does have agency. I think she could easily say to the gangsters, um, you know, much like Dennis Hopper to a certain extent, in fact they're very comparable scenes actually um so yeah i'm talking about the scene in the motel where obviously she could just say oh the drugs are under there clarence is on his way back he made me do it type thing like but she wants to protect clarence and she goes to the absolute nth degree so she makes a choice there she makes a decision there there's yeah there's definitely a choice there but it's that's kind of what i was saying earlier which is that her choices and the things that are done to her by the you know the other actors within this and you know actors as in uh, agents um are, are often like she did it all for love is a very simple one line character motivation and i don't think that there's a lot else there oh no i i actually think there's more to it than that and i guess this is why i'm equating her to henry hill because i think there's a lot about kind of class in here and about like the working class and and the fact that they don't have choices um you know Clarence makes decisions, but they're all bad decisions, right? It's not yeah. like he fares much better. Um, and, you know, what have you got as escapism when you're working class, as, as both of these people are? Like, you can have, mar- you know, marriage will help you escape, entertainment will help you escape, and potentially crime, often linked to drugs or partaking in drugs help you escape and these are people who are kind of trapped by their circumstances everyone's fucking against them but through the purity and the power of of their love they make it through the various kind of bad decisions and the various things that are attacking them to get to that beach at the end and and have their kind of blissful happy ending so yeah i i don't know i i and i think the fact that alabama is the one telling the story is also very cool and interesting i mean in the original draft, it made sense because she had to survive to tell the tale because Clarence died in that version. But in this one, where they both survive, the fact that it is um, Alabama's story, I think, and certainly at that stage in the 90s, I think the decision to, to tell this from her perspective gives her kind of power and agency as well, because what we're seeing is kind of what she's chosen to tell us to a certain extent. That's interesting. So actually, this is something I hadn't thought about before, but something you sort of triggered with how you described it there. If if we're to believe, as I had not really considered, that the entire film is from her point of view, rather than just that it's bookended by this narration, then that means that the scenes that play out that she's not present for, she has to find out about somehow. So with Drexel, that could easily be uh slater's character telling her about what happened Mm -hmm. but then you've got stuff like hopper and uh uh hopper and walken like there's no way she could know about that so are we to so is it from her point of view or is it just bookended well i think that it i think it's definitely from her point of view and i think that's talked about a little bit um elsewhere but as with any of these kinds of things like i mean you know this very well you have to cheat to a certain extent right um it's kind of like a novel basically it's like very novelistic this this whole movie um it really reminds me of elmore leonard and it could just be if if you wanted to stick strictly to that logic it could just be that she's imagined that's how it went down with hopper because i mean it's a very elaborate speech for a um for a security guard who had drinking problems like i know you know he's interested in history and it's justified in all that kind of in all those kinds of ways because we joined them several years after 
the story is is being told from that beach when you know they've had a kid who looks like four or five something like that so she could have either have heard about it or filled in the blanks and imagined stuff i think it still works fair enough if you say it's a hell of a speech for a working class alcoholic ex-cop uh, I say it suffers exactly the same problems as a speech imagined by <laughs> Alabama. I, I, I can see your perspective there. But actually, I'm glad that we have an opportunity to revisit that because as I was saying that, I was like, no, no, that's bullshit because that speech actually comes from a working class person. That comes yeah. from someone in Tarantino's life. What's his name? Big T? Big? Is it Big T or Big D? Um, but yeah, basically a, a friend of the family who who used to give that speech to to tarantino i think more than once or or perhaps it was just once and tarantino with his capacity for uh, photographic recall um just remembered it but yeah there's a lovely story in one of the commentaries i think it's the tarantino one where he talks about his mum watching the movie with big t and big t getting very excited about the fact that tarantino used his speech his awful racist diatribe <laughs> well he he was i'm not saying that um this makes a difference either way but he uh, is a black person and you know there's there's all sorts of stuff that goes on at that kind of poverty level of trying to kind of find your place and and I... that is the hardest part of of this film for me actually and it always has been and the way I kind of justify it to myself is that Hopper's character is trying to trigger the racism, you know, in yeah. in, in, in Walken. He's trying to use racism against the character as opposed to... to yeah, to, to utilise his own innate racism against him. Exactly. Though his dog I, I is called say... Rommel. So that's... <laughs> yeah, his dog is called Rommel. I would, I would find uh, that speech a lot more comfortable if it was delivered by a black actor. Yeah. But that makes casting... Uh, Slater's father a lot harder. Yeah, yeah. So and actually, it needs needs one line of dialogue. So to fix. So yeah, uh, um, I, I'm kind of glad we covered it, but let's move on. I would like to make one last point before we we finish yeah. this because um, we're starting to run long, aren't we? But Tim Lucas's commentary is insane, oh. right? It, it actually made me look up what else he's done so I can start collecting films for his commentaries. That's how good <laughs> it was. Because I, I honestly thought I knew everything there was to know about this movie. I still have my copy of Empire magazine with True Romance on the cover. That has survived many moves over the years. That is a kind of precious object that I keep with me. But yeah, he goes so deep. There's some amazing shade aimed at critics who need to learn to read movies like this. Like it comes up a couple of times and I love it. I love his passion. And yeah, he points out stuff that I've never noticed, whether it's the appropriateness of the song selections, like he kind of goes deep into the lyrics and the context and all that kind of thing, or even the beautiful synchronicity of the product placement at one point which i had never ever noticed and is clearly a choice by scott yeah it was just so good it made me want to cry at the end just like this movie does every single time i watch it true romance what a picture i think we've we've done it justice here and i'm, I'm glad that you still like it despite the kind of uh oh yeah, moral, yeah i'm just being contrary i actually do quite like the film okay <laughs> excellent that makes me very happy one, to hear one thing i will i will say to you and this is a recommendation for sam only so we're keeping it out of the recommendation section the rest of you should not listen for a second sam if you haven't heard it tim's audio commentary on the uk blu-ray uh i think it's the blu-ray it might be the dvd of lizzie son visage is incredible oh amazing oh that will bump to the top of my list thank you dan and yeah i do like it when uh when you're contrarian you're much better at than me I just come across like a total prick when I try to be a contrarian <laughs> on this podcast. Like I listen back to some of these episodes and I'm like, I really need to work on my character here because, um, yeah, this does not make me sound good. So um, thank you for being so decent in your contrarianness, Dan. That was a fun <laughs> conversation. Uh, recommendations. What would you like to recommend based on this film? I've got three, Sam. You go first. Oh, wow. Excellent. All right. Well, um, Let's hope that that this isn't one of them. I don't think it will be, but but let's. Well, that's see. what I'm kind of hoping one of them is because it'll just thin it out for me, and I don't have to do any more thinking. <laughs> yeah, thinking is is not easy at the moment. It's it's very hot, it's and you've been hot. very busy. Um, 
first one from me i'm just gonna read the back of the box for this recommendation so here we go and then i'll give you the title at the end one night in tokyo leo a young boxer down on his luck meets his in quotes first love monica a cool girl and an addict but still an innocent unwittingly caught up in a drug smuggling scheme leo and monica find themselves pursued through the night by a corrupt cop a yakuza his nemesis and a female assassin hired by the chinese triads and then there's a quote on the back of the box that says the best true romance riff you'll ever see um i wasn't aware of that when i dug this out for for this recommendation but um it seems to work um so yeah i don't know if i need to say any more than that other than it's called first love it's directed by Mike. And it's the sort of movie Clarence and Alabama would enjoy, especially the super fun third act. Also, Mike is obviously a Tarantino fan. He gave the director a cameo in Sukiyaki Western Django, um, though Mike is also a money fan. Um, when asked why he called this film First Love, uh, when other films are called First Love, he basically said so that he could make as much money as possible so there's a chance that he put tarantino <laughs> into his western because uh he was bankable at that time but anyway i'm going off track this was not in my notes first love if you love true romance i definitely recommend checking it out dan what is first from you so first from me is the film that i kept on alluding to all the way through the podcast <laughs> and it's tarantino's short which is actually i realized because i was looking up the year listed on imdb as the film that true romance is based on oh. true romance is a remake of this film which i think is stretching it a little bit but it's my best friend's birthday from 87 it's a black and white film starring sort of co-starring tarantino tarantino plays the 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 best friend in this case the the boss in the true romance setting who hires the um the sex worker for his his lonely best friend it's very student filmy but it's also like looking at the you know that meme of uh, charlie from always Sunny in philadelphia where he's got the like the mad eyes and the map on the wall oh like, yeah with all the red string yeah yeah this is this is that wall for tarantino's future scripts oh wow there's Fantastic. so much i mean you know obviously it's it's only it's under an hour um it's on youtube you can you can look it up pretty easily it's the first result is is the whole thing yeah it, it's it's really interesting to see most of it has come has moved into true romance there's obviously some key changes and it's very interesting to see them but uh but lo loads of little things have, have filtered through to other characters uh, tarantino's character in it is a dj when i watched this i was surprised that he hadn't ended up playing the dj in reservoir dogs because it's basically the same character oh well wow. it's very it's a very different character they've just got the same name <laughs> You know, this is a recommendation for me because obviously, you know, you can't be a Tarantino fan without having heard of this movie. But he talks it down so much that I've just never bothered watching it. So if you're recommending, oh no, it, I think you I'll should definitely, out. yeah, you should definitely, definitely check it out. Mm. Excellent, excellent, I love it. All right, well, my next recommendation is not a movie so there's no chance for crossover with dan unfortunately i'm sorry but yeah i just want to take the opportunity to recommend that people read elmore leonard's crime books which are mostly set in detroit just like this movie um time magazine called him the dickens of detroit which is a title you could also give Tony Scott thanks to this film and Beverly Hills Cop 2, which is another masterpiece. Yeah, Leonard's work is a gigantic influence on this film. Just huge, huge influence. Uh, the structure, the characters, like the, the plot, every single element can be traced back to Elmore Leonard's writing. And so I'd really recommend starting with The Switch, which is essentially a Jackie Brown prequel with some of the same characters. Very short, very easy read. And yeah, Mr. Majestic, which is mentioned in, in this film, is, is short and fun. I also love La Brava and City Primeval. But really, you could start anywhere with, with Leonard. Like, it's all fantastic. And it's just like having dozens of new Tarantino movies. So yeah, Elmore Leonard, you'll have heard Tarantino mention his name. But if you haven't actually dug into his work, you just have so, so many treats ahead of you. Dan, what's next from you? It's Roger Avery's Rules of Attraction. Hey, interesting. Right, wow, that is a dark side. Uh, anyway, yes, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Most people who know about Tarantino know about the slightly peculiar relationship he had with Roger Avery. They knew each other from video store days. There was some slightly peculiar, like, 
complications, confusions, disagreements about who wrote what, including True Romance, which uh, was written by Tarantino when he was rewriting a script that Avery had given him. But I'd say that Rules of Attraction, aside from it actually, in my opinion, being Avery's best film, is also the first film, I think, where he'd really sort of got out from under the shadow of Tarantino when he was writing it. And I think to some extent that's because it's a Brett Easton Ellis uh, source material, so he's he's sort of like just gone into the shadow of another tower. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting movie. It's a little problematic in places it's definitely a difficult watch in some places but it's also really interesting to see this like kind of the other side of the tarantino coin from at least the early days sort of go out here and do its own thing yeah i will i will never get a handle on your taste dan for as long as i live i will never get a handle <laughs> on your taste I <laughs> anyway I'm, a, yes, I'm an enigma a, it, wrapped in a mystery wrapped in some <laughs> questionable genre cinema yeah <laughs> Uh, amazing and just um in case any of the precious arrowheads aren't aware um true romance was technically a rewrite of a roger avery script however it was just so completely completely different that um avery kind of happily let him kind of not just take it away for true romance it's actually true romance and natural born killers the rewrite it was kind of so long and got split into two movies so um yeah, I think what happened in the original script was Natural Born Killers first and then they went on a road trip to track down someone who'd profited off their imprisonment following the prison break in, in Natural Born Killers and, and that's when it kind of turned into True Romance. I think I'm remembering that correctly. But it's all on this disc. Right. Um, you yeah. know, uh, all this information is, is on this incredibly packed and beautiful disc. Right, uh, that's the end of that. I can't believe that we got to the end of this without you saying the three magic words to me, Dan. Well, the three magic words. Sam. Not I love so, you, but I love you. <laughs> city on fire. Um, oh well, but it, you know, if we were doing a different Tarantino movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to recommendations from the past couple of weeks. Unless you want to drop your final, you had you said you no, had three. No, no, no. I'm all good. All good. Okay. All right. What what have you been watching recently? So I have been just catching up on some some titles that have been on my list for a while. You know what it's like. You get a list and the list is so fucking big. You, you've got stuff on your list and you don't remember even hearing about it, let alone why you put it on your list. Hmm. This is one of those films. Uh, it's directed by Sebastian Silva in 2013. Uh, it's called Crystal Fairy and the Magic Cactus. Oh, you know okay. this movie? No, I don't. The title sounds vaguely familiar. Tell me more about yeah, it. Yeah, that's basically what happened to me when I saw it right, on, my, yeah. on my watch list. So Crystal Fairy and the Magic Cactus is about possibly the most like frustrating and unlikable people in the world. Michael Sarah plays an American visiting South America, and he is absolutely hateful. I'm going to level like... with you here, Dan. I thought this was some like Russian fairy tale adaptation from the 1960s, no. so I'm completely off base here. Please carry on. No, no, no. Yeah, it's well. This is the thing. It's so it's a it's a South American movie. It stars, uh, I think, I have to double check, but I think it stars three brothers, one of whom is the director. Um, or maybe they're the dire- they are brothers of the director and he's not in it. Uh, but, uh, and Michael Sarah, uh, they're sort of, he- Michael Sarah is staying with one of the brothers and he's hoping to go on this kind of like spirit quest to go and, uh, and take, a, a, like find a specific cactus and like make a soup out of it and go on a psychedelic quest and you know all that kind of stuff but he's got this incredibly like bullish hit like aggressively hipster attitude that just makes him painful to watch in the best way possible and while they're you know in the opening scenes of the movie he gets shit-faced at a party uh, he meets gabby hoffman who plays this sort of like flower child called crystal fairy and he invites her along on the road trip and then she like just turns up and sort of like is like, yeah, I'm coming with you, like you said. And he's like, oh, who invited this incredibly annoying woman? And his very sympathetic and nice and empathetic like fellow travellers are like, oh, man, you did. You know, oh, she's all right. Let her come along. And he's like, oh, she's so embarrassing. I hate her. And it's just about their relationship on the road. And then there's also a slightly peculiar exorcist reference. Wow. I, I, I don't know what to say. That is, um, yeah, I feel like I've entered a parallel universe. Yeah. The- <laughs> 
as much as I was vaguely familiar with the title and thought it was a, a, a Russian film from the 1960s, I can't believe I've never heard of this film. It's about yeah, no, exactly. It, I think it won an award at Sundance. Wow. It's a, it's a it's a movie about self enlightenment when you don't want it. Okay, interesting. Yeah, um, nice. and and sort of like the the hedonistic and uh, slightly egocentric pursuit of self enlightenment that we in the modern West think of, and how that's largely bullshit, and that's not where self enlightenment comes from. Love it, love it. All right, well, I'm going to do my first one from the past couple of weeks, which is someone to watch over me. The best Tony Scott movie he never made, directed by his brother Ridley Scott. This erotic thriller features one of the best portrayals of the divide between the working class and the upper class i've seen in american cinema with a truly astonishing performance by lorraine bracco three years before goodfellas so possibly that's why i had god godfellas sorry goodfellas on the brain earlier i'm very <laughs> hot it's very tiring but now i want to see godfellas someone to watch over me is about a, a a poor cop who falls in love with a rich woman who witnessed a murder who he's supposed to be protecting very stylish very cool great music one of ridley scott's best movies and also one of his most underseen so someone to watch over me is out on indicator with some brilliant extras including a great slash honest interview with the writer and it would actually maybe make a good double with true romance who knows but uh someone to watch over me i recommend it dan what's next from you same pile this one's a 1949 noir awesome a courtroom noir starring humphrey bogart Ooh. directed by nicholas ray oh yeah um keep talking it's it's total coincidence that i watch this in the same like three day span as rewatching True Romance, but I watched Knock on Any Door. Oh, what wow. connects? What connects Knock on Any Door and True Romance, Sam? Um, is it the fact that Humphrey Bogart just really fucking wants to sleep with uh, a prostitute, absolutely guilt free? <laughs> I mean, Humphrey Bogart was definitely. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I mean, actually, technically, you can't defame the dead. No, like, you can't. Libel laws it's, don't count. It's fine. Yeah, if if Humphrey Bogart wanted to sleep with a sex worker, then he was definitely just able to sleep with sex workers guilt-free and without paying because he was very famous and people peculiarly thought he was handsome. Well, I mean, you're saying that you don't want to defame the dead, but yeah, I, I feel like... <laughs> That's something I mean, that's in I, one of his biographies, surely. I didn't say I didn't want to defame the dead. <laughs> I said it wasn't legally def defamation if they're dead. Oh, brilliant. All right. Well, anyway, carry um, on. Tell us anyway, about this movie. The thing that connects them is that uh, it's, it, I mean, it's based on a novel. So the, the phrase appears in the novel first. Mm -hmm. But Knock on Any Door is the first movie appearance of the phrase, live fast, die young, have a good looking course. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Which is obviously... A very important phrase said twice in the movie, yeah. uh, in True Romance. It's also said in My Best Friend's Birthday. Tarantino says it there. Um, and most importantly, he says in, in My Best Friend's Birthday, he says, live fast, die young, and have a good-looking corpse, not the modern version, which everyone says now, which is live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. Yeah, and which also... Which is a direct quote. Yeah, and, and also it's... Um, for some reason, it's associated with, with Elvis for people, but also with James Dean, most famously. But yeah, like you say... Same di same director as um, Rebel Without a Cause, I think. Exactly. And and like you say, a misquote. And um, weirdly, uh, the original setup for Tarantino's one. original ending. That's why he wanted it to end in that way. That line is supposed to set up the ending anyway we've spent quite a lot of time on this one line of dialogue from this movie why do you want to recommend this brilliant film because it's fucking great sam yes and you'll uh, you'll love it have you have you seen i it? have yeah you'll, yeah 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 it's it's great um bogart plays a lawyer who grew up on the streets, served a bit of time in prison pulled himself up by his bootstraps and now doesn't understand like doesn't have any sympathy for the people who are in the situation that he was in before because he was able to escape it and it doesn't go into the sort of you know various luck and chance and privilege and so on that that befell him that allowed him to escape it but he's become this kind of like ladder up lack of sympathy guy and even when and he does show sympathy for this young kid who uh, ends up being like he loses his father because Bogart handed off a case at the law firm and this like guy unsympathetic guy kind of fucked it up 
And so this kid's father goes to prison for uh, what should have been an easy self-defense case, but he doesn't speak English, so that he's torn apart on the stand, and so he goes to jail, and he's like, ah, what is it? The, the lawyer that Bogart left in charge of it is like, what does it matter? He'll only get a year, but then he dies of a heart attack in prison. So Bogart does feel a bit guilty. So Bogart's like, uh, okay, well, I'll look after this kid a bit. But then the kid doesn't want his help, and he doesn't do everything that Bogart tells him to, and he keeps on getting involved with the bad guys and crime and, and the streets, and Bogart, you know, and he goes to prison, and then Bogart goes to the war and sort of he says himself he forgets about him for a bit. And the, the bulk of the movie is a mix of flashback and, and, and then from like the end of the second act, it's it plays out in real time. And it's ostensibly around a court case where this young kid that Bogart feels to some extent responsible for, but has sort of washed his hands with by the time the film starts, has had a murder pinned on him by the police. And Bogart's uh, fiance, girlfriend, wife, conscience. Uh, tells him that he has to you know give this kid another chance and and go out there and so Bogart does even though it might cost him a partnership at his law firm and so while in a sort of like classic 1949 way it can be a little mawkish and a little heavy-handed with some of the emotional stuff it's also very very effective I choked up a little bit at a scene where the young kid and his his then fiance uh, maybe wife by that point in the film are arguing and he's sort of like he's he's gone straight and he's got a proper job but things have gone a bit shit and he's lost some money and gambling and he's he, and he's basically like just fucking leave me I'm useless I'm never going to be any good and she's like I just fucking want you to be better so I can spend my life with you and it's like the, the her love for this self-destructive like sort of engine is is very like emotionally punchy um one thing I'd like to say uh to people who haven't seen knock on any door and are going to watch it for the first time based on this recommendation which they should is to bear in mind when looking at it as a representation of class in America is that it's based on a novel written by an African-American uh, author so although all the characters in the movie are white that is ostensibly whitewashing um, by Hollywood at the time and it's very interesting to look at it through that prism of, of uh, racial stuff as well because it does sort of touch on that a little bit in the court case stuff yeah that's fantastic and that that connects very well to true romance in a strange kind of way yeah it's yeah it's a really really well-made film and the ending's incredible yeah it's worth uh definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen it yeah fantastic movie fantastic recommendation i also have a fantastic movie for you possibly a recommendation for dan um the fifth horseman is fear dan have you seen this one I have not. Um, it's a just a great Czech new wave war movie that's out now on Blu-ray from Second Run. Uh, this one combines poetic cinematography with compelling characters following a compromised former doctor roaming Nazi-occupied Prague hunting for morphine for a patient. And that's all I'll say about this beautifully shot and very powerful movie. Um, the Fifth Horseman is Fear major recommendation uh, on second run and it's out now right should we go into extra features yes please extra features extra features extra features extra features, extra features. dan do you have any extra features i do not i have a very quick one basically i wanted to hear from a woman about true romance you know i want to hear from women about all the films that we cover but um this felt like a, a good excuse to um, get a kind of different perspective on a film that is kind of seen as being a bit of a, a male fantasy. So I sat down with Shay Mosafin of Black Widow fame, who also happens to be my partner, who I talked about earlier in the episode. Um, yeah, to get her take on True Romance. So let's have a little listen to that. I was realizing about True Romance that like I've had this romanticized view of it for so long. And there, <laughs> this last watch, I was seeing more of their really bad decision-making. Like it's really, <laughs> really obvious now. Whereas before it was just like, oh, they're in love. Like you do stupid shit when you're in love. But now it's like, dude, like you fuck killed him. Like <laughs> you didn't need, you didn't need to go chase the guy down. Like, and I know it ended well, I guess as well as it could, but, but, uh, yeah, like really bad, poor decision-making. And um, I got really annoyed with her in the theater this time, which is funny because the first time I saw the movie, I thought, or in subsequent viewings, I thought, oh, how sweet that she spilled popcorn on him, how romantic. And then she's like, what happened? Tell me more. If I were watching the movie, I'd be like, shut the fuck up, bitch. Like I'm trying to watch <laughs> First you spilled popcorn on me. Now you're a... Uh asking me questions 
about the movie that I'm watching and you're late. <laughs> so. You've developed a more strict <laughs> theatre etiquette since uh, the first time you saw it. Exactly. How old were you when you first watched it? I think I was probably 13 or 14. So a lot of it went over my head and the violence was, was so different from the kind of violence that I was used to in slashers and horror films. It was more complex. Mm. And like uh, slashers are a little more like Burt Bacharach described pop music, like three chords in the truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very, uh, I don't know, there's only so much you can do with the formula. But this felt like violence in a very kind of almost a left field kind of way, especially the scene with Gandolfini when he pushes her through the shower. It's so sadistic and fucked up and um, extreme. I think it still grossed me out the same amount that it did the first time I saw it. There's just no softening that sequence at all. Mm. And yeah. how do you feel about Alabama as a character? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, she's she's really, she's, she's like a hopeless romantic. <laughs> and uh, she could have gone down a really bad path, but she caught it sooner. I don't think she was quite jaded enough yet down her pathway to not believe in love in a way. And I think that she also had a lot of fantasies about what she was getting into. But that's what this is all about is fantasy in the first place. It's a fairy tale, really. She's a small town girl and she's in Detroit. And even even the the soundtrack of the movie really paints that fantasy element too. It's really very, almost reminded me of the soundtrack to O.C. and Stiggs. It's really tropical sounding and happy. Yeah. And I hear that theme, it's over snow and people warming themselves over a dumpster fire, literally like a can on fire. <laughs> so... There is a fantasy established right away, this sort of softening of the really harsh realities. And and they go on this massive, like, fantastical journey. It's almost like um, Badlands in a way, too. It's very different with the characters, but, but there is this, like, spree that they go on. Mm. And, and badly, in, in Badlands, of course. But this, this fantasy that love is what carries you through is just so romantic and... and um, I could see that really play out in her. I didn't think about that before. Yeah, but she's a bit of a of a dreamer, I guess. And she's playing a role, you know, like she pretended to like things for him when she says that she didn't really like the Partridge family. But it made you wonder, well, did she really like Sunny Chiba? Did she really like this? And I think that she really did because there's a scene where they're watching the Kung Fu movie together, like after the fact, they're, they're like testing it in the real world or sitting on the couch together being sweet right before he talks to Elvis. She doesn't have an Elvis in her head per se, but she has that dream. Yeah, that pretty woman sort of fantasy. But we were talking about that too, about how pretty woman is sort of the more bourgeois, um, <laughs> like the bourgeois fantasy come true where it's money that really brings them together. And it's also, his preoccupation with being kind of a hero or I guess like a savior type. So she wanted to be saved in a way and he wanted to save. And I wonder if there's a little bit of that with, with true romance, but maybe not as much. I feel like every time he tries to save, he kind of fucks up. Like, yeah, not even there. Yeah. He's they, could, they literally could have just, like she says, she's the sensible one. She's like, you know, you don't need to go there. We're fine as we are. Right. Um, yeah, she doesn't want to open the can of worms. I think she yeah. knows. And so that, I guess that leads me to, like, her agency. What do you think of that? What do you think of her as a kind of character in a narrative? Like, do you think that she has enough agency or do you think that she's just kind of there to propel Clarence? She didn't have much agency until she says, fuck you to Gandolfini. Like, that's when I felt like she came yes. to... Yeah. Yeah, she really became a hero, a heroine, however you want to say, in that moment. And she arrived. It really felt like she needed to step up for herself because <laughs> she's on her own with this guy while her partner is out talking about Elvis magazines and eating double cheeseburgers and stuff, chili dogs and stuff. <laughs> off in his little fantasy realm with no sense of urgency whatsoever. So yeah, she really stepped up there. And um, it's interesting that just after that, you have the scene where the planes are going uh, overhead 
and they kind of talk about the future and she says that she wants to go to Cancun and he's like oh you know why Cancun and she's like you know it sounds like a movie um that's right you know, Alabama go to Cancun yeah yeah he says um in my movie you get top billing which I always find kind of really moving um but yeah and then obviously they end up in Cancun so she you know she's the one kind of telling the story at the start and and you realize that she's telling it from the beach at the end and that's right. a place that she's chosen she's living her fantasy you know yeah absolutely that's a really good point yeah really she's so incredibly sweet and feminine and and also idealistic in a very believable way <laughs> like you just want to be swept away in her story and and you want everything to work out for her really I was more of a fan of her than I was of of, uh, of her dude, <laughs> Christian Slater. I was more like rooting for her, to, for things to work out for her than for him. Although you do get more of his backstory with his dad and, and he does mention his dad being an alcoholic and having a hard time growing up. And she doesn't talk much about her upbringing, but it's like they came together from different pockets of the world, but they were both ready for each other for mm. different reasons. And, and it just... Uh, really like it just worked out it was the power of love <laughs> what was the film that you mentioned that, that could be a recommendation off the back of um oh yeah there are a few i guess badlands is one for sure but but also psychos in love oh yeah yeah it's not the same story of course but it's a love story about two serial killers who meet and they both have the same little quirk <laughs> I'm a psycho killer. I don't believe it. What? Me too. Get out of here, really? Really? I, I'm not kidding. You know, there's a movie I saw that seems to fit in my mind, but I'd need to rewatch it before I really recommend it. But Miami Blues feels like true romance to me. Have you seen Miami Blues? I have not seen Miami Blues. Tell me about Miami Blues. It stars Alec Baldwin and Jennifer Jason Lee. Who's another Tarantino uh Another Tarantino. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> this dude, uh, essentially Alec Baldwin gets out of prison and immediately goes on a crazy crime ridden rampage. And his dynamic with Jennifer Jason Lee is also very similar to, to true romance. I used to rob people who robbed people. Kind of like Robin Hood? Yeah, except I didn't give the money to the poor people. Well, the bellman also said the guy had a hooker with him. Buy a nice little house with a white picket fence. You live happily ever after. I tell you what, let's go straight to the happily ever after part, okay? Can you talk a little bit about your label and kind of the ethos behind it? I started the label as a way to resurrect and preserve analog media, as well as the films that uh, are going on the analog media. To me, it's a sentimental format. To a lot of us, it is. A lot of us who grew up in the 80s and the 70s, that's how you experienced films, for the most part, was in a theater or you went to the video store and you waited months and months and months for something to come out. And it was always very exciting. So to me, VHS is a sacred object, like a relic that you can put on your shelf and worship, <laughs> for lack of a better word. But I also want it to be something worthy of that stature. So I release films that to me are personally very exciting, that have beautiful art that exist as something that you would want to put on your top shelf and put a spotlight on. So I find things that have slipped between the cracks, things like cable access films that aired and never had an official release. I look for things that didn't reach very far past their zip code. And I also look for exciting new horror films because I think that there's also the same risk today that there was back then, which is that things can fall between the cracks and, and fall away into obscurity on digital streaming platforms. So I like to take things that are really, in my mind, worthy of, of elevating and put it out on a format that we all miss and love. And one of the things that I love about your label, one of the reasons I wanted to be a part of it is, is that kind of attitude that you talk about. It's the ultimate in boutique releasing, like literally it, you're creating something that could go in a glass case and people could look at. 
and obviously people can still watch the films if they've got VCRs, but um, we're also doing the thing with ours where we're sending out the digital files of the films as well so people can still watch them and have that object to, as you put it, worship. Um, Yeah, man, I love that idea so much. It's really a nice combination of what film fans, I think, want today. You want the accessibility, but you also want something that you can hold in your hand that feels good, that you can show to your friends and and take a picture of and put online. So it's really the best of both worlds. Well, thank you so much, Shay, for your time and for talking with me about true romance. You are welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. Excellent. There we go. Uh, lovely words from Shay there. And uh, yeah, very interesting. So, Dan, do you have any final words before we go into social media and goodbyes? Uh Oh, by the time this comes out, uh, the news will be out there that uh, Dashcam, the Blumhouse picture I did at the end of last year, uh, is playing at the London Film Festival, which I'm incredibly excited about. I haven't seen it yet. But yeah, so that that's all. That's my thing. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that'll be at the, the London Film Festival. I think it's uh, mid-October or is it the end of October, London Film Festival? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, um, check it out then. And Dan, how can people follow you and find out more about Dashcam? Uh, I'm at 13fingerfx uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, I can't really post anything that I'm working on at the moment, so it's it's gone away from being uh, film stuff, although I should probably dig out some sort of retro fun stuff to, to fill the gap. But um, yeah, there's loads of stuff I, I worked on coming up. Um, Earwig, uh, I think, is at TIFF as well and Sitches. Yeah, loads of stuff. I'll be posting about it. Follow me. Awesome. And I'm at Sam Ashurst on Twitter and you can find out uh, more about the VHS release that I discussed with Shay, but you can just follow me for for general really long silent periods. If you like Twitter accounts that don't really post very much and when they do, it's to promote their own release, then um, really do check me out. Um, You'll you'll have a lot of fun there. Right, (laughs) Dan... That's it. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. And we promise to be more professional next time. Next time. Bye-bye.